Welcome to Finding the Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian company, Euros Hartleys. This is a podcast series where we take time out to get to know the story behind the people who front some of Western Australia's leading companies. We look back at some of the moments in their life and career that shaped the journey to being the leader they are today and provide you with some real insights into the way they think and approach things, both in business and in life. To get the volume adjusted in your car or your headphones sorted and settle in for a great story. Here is your Finding the Front host, Tim Banfield. Hey everyone, and great to have you listening to episode 7 of Finding the Front. This is an absolute ripper and includes a special guest, we've been really looking forward to having on the show. Ian Wells is the Group Chief Financial Officer of Fortescue Metals Group, one of Western Australia and Australia's most iconic companies. I have known Ian since we grew up together in the small country town of Quarity, but watching his career path to where he is now and seeing what he has been able to achieve has been really quite something. In Finding the Front, he provides us with a fantastic insight into his journey his experiences, some great stories, and what an amazing opportunity it has been to be part of the Fortescue business. So without further ado, let's get started. It's a real privilege to introduce to Finding the Front, Mr. Ian Wells. Wellsy, welcome to Finding the Front. Thanks a lot for coming along. We know you're a, a very busy man, like extremely busy, and you've been able to take some time out of your busy schedule to come and join us. Really appreciated, and I know we've known each other all our lives, but yeah, in a different circumstance, here we are, able to wax about what's going on in your world, and it's really interesting to be able to get some insights into what has been a, an absolutely decorated career, both professionally but also family-wise. So thanks again, mate. Well, thanks, uh, thanks for having me, Tim. I really like uh, what you're doing with these podcasts and giving people real insights into the into the real people behind. WA's business community, so it's a, it's a real privilege, mate, so thanks. Good on you. Look, so I just want to go back to the early days where you grew up, and you're a country boy, and we both grew up in Querreting, and I just think it's a really important point to really drill down on is your upbringing and the fact that you had a pretty close family of six and, and how that all unfolded growing up in the town of Querreting. Just give us a little bit of an insight, born and bred. Yeah, very proud Quirting boy. Anyone who will listen, I'm, I'm you know, really proud to say I grew up in Quirting. I guess as we talked through it, I didn't end up spending a lot of time there. I sort of left as a 15, 16-year-old to go off to boarding school. But, you know, it's those formative years. And interesting, later, later in life, I found out that uh, we were born on Baladong, Noongar country. And, of course, uh, that's an important part of the, the story as well, and, and a connection to what I used to call the country, uh, which I now call country, in the way that the Aboriginal people talk about country. And, and your connection back to that, connection back to family and friends, is something that I draw on, particularly in, in difficult times of, you know, what would this do or what would that do? And my upbringing in, in Cruding was very simple. Dad was a painter and renovator. Nowadays, you'd, you'd probably call that a contractor. In my youth, you know, I was very focused on sport, probably focused on three things, banners. Um, the first one was sport, the second one was sport, and the, and the third one was sport. <laughs> you know, you'd be playing uh, cricket in, in summer and footy in winter and, you know, down the local pool, and it was a really carefree, carefree life. But I, I learned lots of valuable lessons, including the value of, of hard work, living on the land and living 
in the country. We were we were townies as opposed to you know on the farm. Dad and and my brother had the family business. My my older brother worked in the family business, and on the holidays and stuff, I'd go off to work with them because you know well what else you got to do and. In hindsight, getting to spend that time with um, my brother and dad was was really valuable because you can you kind of never get that back. But you know, it was the value of hard work. I wasn't a um, pedestrian in, in those uh, in those days. I, I learned how to paint and renovate. And you know, when you're out at someone's property and something doesn't go quite according to plan, you know, you can't just pop down to Bunnings and <laughs> grab some some more screws and stuff. So you know, you ma- you make it work. And uh, you know, the value of hard work was a, a really important part because again if you think about a painter and renovator working in a town of 200 odd people perhaps two and a half thousand people in in the community your current job is going to dictate your next job you know if you don't do a good job then you know you you're as you said four kids um, providing for your four kids is really important you got to get it right and you know in, in that such a small town a, a painter and renovator I can't ever imagine I can't remember dad not having work and in the most part he was always sort of three months behind so that's a bit of an insight into the start of the story if you like. Puts a bit of emphasis on word of mouth doesn't it? Yeah it it does and you know if you it's a bit like if you don't get the job right you're not going to get another job and therefore you know you're putting your family at risk and so so what do you do you 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 know you get it you get it right and um, you know that was a sustainable life it was a pretty simple life you know, you, you rode the ebbs and flows of the, the commodity markets, you know, the, the wheat price or the sheep price and, you know, the, the extensions got done in the good years yeah. and, you know, maybe a bit of maintenance got done in the, in the not so good years. But uh, anyway, we, we kind of we got through it. But, you know, I, I really valued that time and also, you know, good manners, doing the right thing, integrity, respect, those, those sorts of things, you know, doing what you say you're going to do is really, really important. And in a country setting, you know, as you say, word of mouth, you do the right thing, that gets out. You know, you do the wrong thing and everyone knows about it pretty quick. And your mum, Peg, I mean, she sadly just recently passed away, but she was an iconic character in the town. I would see her smiling, beautiful face. can still picture it. She had such a role to play within your family, but also the community, very community-minded. And I can see that in the Wells family. How did you find that growing up? Your mum was really quite passionate about the community of Querity. Well, growing up was quite intimidating when I think back because of the you know, dad's role in the community, mum's role in the community. My older sister was highly regarded. My second sister had left and gone to Perth. Similarly, highly regarded. My, my brother was a sporting legend. He's, I don't Probably, uh, I think it was eight or nine premierships with Querding have won uh, on eight or nine premierships in, in the town's history. He's been part of four or five of them and as many premierships. So, you, you know, you're living to these expectations. So I'm the youngest of four by 10 years. So I was, you know, another, a next generation. And so, you know, growing up with amazing role models, both in the family and, and in the community set you up for success and the continued drive to be better is driven off the folks that you aspire to be like. And so and sadly, uh, as you say, mum, mum passed away and you don't get to see that firsthand because, you know, you, you live and you've, you've been with your parents and so forth. 
but to then you know go to Quirrating and see the community respect and support and have the town hall, you know, chock-a-block full of people paying their respects to mum was over overwhelming and a proud a proud time. Sadly, we lost dad. It's 26 years ago now, so and that's part of the story as well where, you know, I reflect back of working with my brother and dad back in the day of how precious that time was without actually necessarily knowing at the time, what, what, at the time, what mm. was coming, and so you know, it's a good reminder of making the most of now and the, and the present and what you've got now and the good things you've got now, because you just don't know what's coming down the down the track. Now, I was 26 years old, and uh, my dad passed away, so or our father passed away. So, Wellsy, I just wanted to quickly come back to the role that sport in an, in your early stages, the role that sport played. You alluded to your brother Mark being a fantastic footballer. He was a gifted footballer, probably still is if you wanted to play. Yourself, you were very gifted as well. And I know that you played junior sport early, but then you went on to play a lot with men at an early age. Mm. Tell me the role model side of it and the learning the values of teamwork was instilled in you very early. Do you just want to give us a bit of an insight into that? Yeah. Well, as as a kid, I was probably, I I enjoyed cricket more than, than footy. And to put that into perspective, uh, I don't know, 12 or 13, I, I realised that the, the seniors, so back in those days, Quirting had uh, four cricket teams, you recall, and we had two turf wickets, and uh, so you know, two games going uh, a week. And, and I remember being somewhere and someone said, oh, they were short. So I would be praying on a Sunday morning that someone wasn't going to turn up at the seniors so that I could play. And sure enough, Quirting... Someone wasn't there and Don Bland or Ken Bland, Rack Walker, somebody gave me, uh, you know, I, I was the, you know, the 12th man but playing the 11th man and I would field at fine leg and, you know, be the 11th batter and then during the batting I'd be praying that I'd get to have a bat and so um, uh, in some weekends I'd be playing juniors in the morning and, and seniors in the afternoon and, you know, that real passion for the game and you just literally can't get enough of it and then, of course, you'd go to school and you'd be thinking about the next the next weekend and and so role models in that sense you know I remember Don Bland saying to me you know I, I, we were walking walking off after the fielding session and you know I said gee I, geez, I hope I can get a bat this week and he said don't worry champ you know good things come to those who wait <laughs> you know and you know that's you know that's 40 years ago or I don't know 30 odd years ago and that sort of stuck with me and these really good quality people with good values of do what you say you're going to do, playing your part in the team and feeling part of the team and, you know, I don't know, field four balls in the whole match and, you know, loved the whole thing and you know, got frustrated as well of, you know, I just want to be involved and be part of it. And so, you know, that led into and it's a, a lot of the learnings as a, as a young person and it kind of starts then to become natural, and, you know, and, and the feeling of doing the right thing, it's very easy you know some respects being in the in the flow and in in the game and you know playing against um guys that were much bigger never really dawned on me to be honest all I wanted to do was contribute to the team and play well and make a contribution and similarly like the you know these role models who you know these guys were amazing amazing cricketers and people and aspiring to be like them of course is unbelievably yes. um, empowering and you know you couldn't you couldn't get better you know so uh you know it's incredibly fortunate to do that you know that's that's not only the white people but also you know playing with the indigenous 
uh, you know, the, the, the Winmars and the Collards and you remember Derek Collard who was good at every single sport known to mankind and you just kind of go on and be like him. I didn't see any difference between you know, the colour of your skin and, you know, uh, it was just, you know, really high quality people and for me that was in a, in a, in a sporting context. So, mate, you, you finished up with querying, as you say. You, you got through the schooling element of that and Bob and Peg said, right, time to pull up the socks and off you went to Mazenoid College. Mm. So that would have been a little bit of a, bit of a change to go away, yeah, some, leave home. Somewhat of a culture shock. Yeah. Banners, as I said, 250 people in town. Uh, my year 10 class, there's 15 of us, five boys and 10 girls. I quite liked those odds and never really replicated them ever again in my life, but <laughs> nonetheless. And then went to boarding school, and so it was 50 boarders. That was pretty intimidating, and, and over 100 year 11. So the first first day of classes, I remember going up to the classes and being quite overwhelmed because 100 kids, all boys, most of them twice the size of me because I was a, I was a little tacker in those days. I hadn't, hadn't quite uh, had my growth spurt yet. 100 young men was the most people I'd ever seen in one place at one time <laughs> in my life, you know, in terms of the microcosm of querying, you know, and I'm in Les Murdy. Yeah, it was very intimidating, culture shock, going from knowing, you know, 15 people in the class, I knew all of them for 15 years, you know, so new, new folks, homesickness, all that stuff. Uh, all came through. Really, yeah, it was, it, was, it was tough, it was, you know, as they say, character building. Character building, yeah, yeah. yeah. That is where you started to learn a bit about independence, I'm sure, though. Mm. We touched on it earlier. Yeah, that's right. And, and boarding school for me was very good because very focused on sports. So Masnod was a big sporting school, uh, straight into first 18 footy, uh, cricket, you know, more than you could ever imagine. So that was, that was really good. The, the other thing that was good for me was the structured life of boarding school. Everyone else was studying, so I was studying. Yes. Prior to that point, Tim, I wasn't very good at studying. Well, not very good at it. Uh, let's say report cards along the lines of shows talent lacks application yes. was fairly consistent. Yes. So, you know, I, I did, did enough to get through, but boarding school was very good for me. A structured approach. Everyone else was studying. That's what everyone else did. And so to fit in, that's what you did. So I, I did very well in TE, I think it was called. Then got good marks out of that. And that sort of set me up for the, the next stage. So this is quite an interesting stage of life, which I'm sure that you've come across through your conversations with aspiring students, people who are looking to get some career advice. Did you know what you wanted to do when you left school? I know that you went on to do a Bachelor of Business at Curtin University, but was that to keep your options open or was it a deliberate choice to go down a financial path? Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really good question. I was reflecting on this recently. In year 11, when we, you know, they say, need to start thinking about what you want to do at uni and so forth, and I, I was high conviction teacher, high conviction teacher. Right. And it had probably felt that way for quite some time, and, you know, the sports side of angle of things, you know, you know, phys ed teacher sounded bloody perfect to me because, you know, it doesn't, it's not work at all. So that's a, an important part of your choice is, well, have a think about what you want to do rather than what others are thinking, and, and where's, where's, where's your passion you know, what, what excites you? And so, so that's what I want to be. So it turns out that the application of studying and so forth, I'm pretty good at accounting and, and maths. And I think someone said to me, oh, accounting's a good one because you get paid really well as an accountant. And so living a humble existence, 
you know, growing up, it's like, oh, okay, so I think it's important to earn some good money. So I, I don't know, I put accounting down as my preference and, and uh, off I went to, to got, you know, got accepted and it was very exciting and I, and I went off to Curtin to do a, a Bachelor of Business. So by getting the degree done and through that period, so you ended up playing league football for Perth Football Club here in the West Australian Football League, which is yeah, a, an outstanding effort. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was a strong competition and you earned your stripes. It was around 1990, 1991 that you finished your degree. Mm. So football played a pretty big role through that period. High um, intensity training commitments, looking after yourself. Mm. When you got through that period, did you find that football had, a, had again anchored you in terms of meeting people, teamwork? A little bit of structure. Yeah, I, th- I think elite elite sport, I guess, is something that you really have to commit to, and you really have to need and and, and want to do it. And it was through that period as well that I met met my wife, or Mandy, back in about uh, was in nineteen ninety one, which was sort of my second second year at Perth. Yes, I'd played seven games in the first year and sort of figured out how that all worked out, and then eight eight games in the in the second year, the second year was when I when I met Mandy and we and we got married at the end of end of that year. So how long have you been married so, to Mandy for? Uh, twenty eight, yeah, twenty twenty eight. Years. Congratulations. Yeah, so uh, you know, or kind of all of that period of time where you know, going back as a young kid, you know, what were my aspirations in life? Well, to play cricket for Australia and you know play league footy, and so didn't get the cricket, but you know I got the the league football and I committed to it but it wasn't going to be the future for me so I kind of I guess I I was fortunate enough to get the opportunity I wouldn't call it a tick the box exercise but I proved to myself that that I could do it what I realized with the study kind of side of things is I couldn't do both and as you know I'm a kind of all-in guy I'm Mm. either going to do it or or I'm not going to do it and I wasn't going to be able to put the time and effort into a uh, you know, a, a decade at Perth or other things that might have come if I was good and if I was good enough. I didn't think personally that I was good enough to go to the next level, and so I chose to go down the route of a career. And the biggest impact on that was meeting Mandy and going, "This is a serious deal, and if I'm going to offer anything to this beautiful woman, I need to get my shit together," as they say. And that's what I did. That's what I decided to. I put my mind to it and. You know, following Perth, I played a couple of seasons in the Amos, which we, I remember we had a couple of games. Cross paths. Past each other. I was fast enough for you not to catch me, uh, <laughs> which was always important. And, you know, that was when my career started. And my, my very first job was two weeks of work experience at a, at a company called ERG. And the, the two weeks of work experience came from a connection through Mandy. Got an introduction to the financial controller then at ERG. I convinced him to give me two weeks work experience. I wouldn't say beg, but it was pretty, you know, as in how do, how, do you, how do you start a career? And this is where young people today have a real challenge because everyone wants experience, but, you know, you can only start at the start. So being humble and vulnerable and saying, I, I need a start and I'm willing to do it for nothing. So yes. I did two weeks of work experience. So ERG at that point uh, was a well-known smart card yep, company. Yeah, smart card manufacturing yeah. up on um, Balcatta Road, Balcatta. Yes. Iconic in that area, I had no idea what ERG did, said, whatever. It was like, no, no, I need some office experience. So I was doing accounts payable, accounts receivable, bank reconciliations. I don't know, whatever they gave me. Yes. You know, I remember going in and looking at the computer. I've just come from uni and going, how do you turn that thing on? You know, it's like, didn't really pay attention that much at uni, kind of get it done. So this is the real deal now. And so 
that two weeks of work experience, I was there for four years, finished my degree, pretty much two-thirds of the way through my, my, my CPA. Uh, so that two weeks of work experience gave me my first job. Was where it started. So, look, Wellesley, that's a good place to just kick off. I mean, Mandy's been a very pivotal part of your life, and I'm glad you brought it up early because you've got two wonderful kids with Mandy, Nathaniel and Jonica, and, you know, they, they're, they're growing up. Jonica's getting married soon. Nathaniel's in Brisbane. So your life has moved forward and you guys have experienced over that 28-year period some significant highs and some amazing lifestyle choices, but also that family network or that close-knit community is maintained. They're now clearly moving into state and you've continued to grow your career. I just want to go back and say, well, you started on this trajectory. ERG was the start. But then you went into the health sector, in essence. Yeah, because that makes perfect sense on on your on your career, doesn't it? So <laughs> smart cards to health. Smart cards to health, and you know. So I, I wanted to start. Didn't really bother me where I started, and what I learned at ERG was my love of management accounting, and because it was a commercial organisation, you know, the financial accounting was done probably by uh, I don't know some, somebody else, and I was part of uh, one you know one of the business business units, and so management accounting, understanding what makes the business tick. I found a love of spreadsheets and key performance indicators and all those sorts of things. But what I was missing was being part of a team. Yes. And the leader of a team. So I wanted to be, that was what I was craving. So I applied for a few different jobs within the organisation and outside and, and ended up getting an opportunity at, at Joondalup Health Campus. And as the finance and admin manager responsible for accounts receivable and accounts payable, um, something, something like that. And that was a really important driver. And again, getting back to you know, sort of career advice, that was from, my, from, from where? Well, it was from my inspiration. Is it that, that's what I wanted to do. And I put my mind to it. And so that's what I did. And I found, um, I found this opportunity, went and spoke to the folks. We got on really well. Uh, you know, it was a kind of interview where they literally wanted you to start the next day. And this was when Joondalup Health Campus, which is now you know, probably a, a thousand or more beds. You know, it's a massive, massive um, business up at Joondalup. At that point in time, it was Wanneroo Hospital. Right. 110-bed public-private hospital that was going to develop into what is, what is now, now Joondalup. So it started at the bottom and we worked our way through and built the hospital. And, but part of it was what, why did I join? It wasn't because it was healthcare. It was a business. It was a job. And it was going to give me the things that I thought were important for my future career. To form um, the foundation you needed. To form the foundation, yeah, yep. exactly right. So that was where I got my first leadership role and could instigate a lot of those things that I'd, I'd learned in, in the sporting sense on the value of, of teams doing the right thing, integrity, and, and being, being yourself. And, and so I, I found those formative years in the development of myself personally, the opportunity to do public speaking. Back in the Joondalup days, I put my hand up to do orientation so Joondalup was recruiting a whole heap of public sector nurses to come and work for them and so I did the finance section can you imagine <laughs> this young whippersnapper <laughs> explaining to what you know on why why you needed to make a profit and that and you know it was very clunky at the start but you know I, I put myself out there because I knew that public speaking in my heart was going to be something important in the future and to be successful in this type of a role and you know where I you know, wanted wanted to get going, so you know, I put my hand up for it, and you know I I actually still do that kind of stuff today, and really uh, really love it. So 
joined Luck for an, a number of years and then got the opportunity to go to Melbourne. So we've lived in Melbourne a couple of times and the first one was with Healthcare of Australia, which was the company that owned Joondalup. And I got the opportunity then to take the next step to go and work in a big private hospital in Heidelberg in, in Melbourne. And we, we spent 18 months in there before we came back to Perth. And ended up getting a, a role in healthcare, but in GP medical centres and, and physiotherapy. And again, sort of not necessarily linked, but part of it was not career-based, but that was very much a, a, a change driven by, by family. So that, that, that's quite a, a huge foundation, but mainly in the healthcare sector. And I, I do note that after that period, you decided you've sort of moved into another path in essence, and you started a role with Alinta. Looking at that, it was quite a significant part of your career mm-hmm. in that point, because you've now gone on to what is a very significant company, top 50 company, the largest Australian energy infrastructure owner and operator with approximately 3,200 employees. I mean, it's quite, it's quite big. At that time, it had a market cap in excess of $7.5 billion. Well, at the time, Alinta was a name that I knew because it was an energy company. Yes. I had really little to nothing, no idea about the company itself. And I, I chose to leave IPN on account of some cultural differences that I had with some, some folks within that business. And I'd made the decision that, that I wanted to leave for my own personal basis, that from a values perspective. And that was another pivotal point in my life where I got to the point where I felt like I couldn't make a difference within the organisation, even at a senior level, and I couldn't influence to the extent that I thought was necessary. So I, I quit. Served out my, my six months' notice, and through that sort of period, I found the Alinta role. And, and the story with Alinta, I got introduced to the to the CFO at the time through my network. I uh, met him the first time, and he said, "Look, we we're just going through a, through an acquisition. Don't really have any roles at the moment. You know, call me back in in I don't know, it was three months or six months. It felt like an eternity because I didn't have a job, and I'm thinking." You know, champ, you need to tick, tick, sort tick. this, <laughs> sort this out, mate. The, the, you know, so I was okay, no worries. So you know, like one minute after the appointed time for him to call me back, I called him back, set up a meeting. I came in and sat down with him. So, so at that stage, I'd kind of got to the point of, you know, we, we need something to happen here. So he was very respectful and went through all the various things. And while well, we don't really have a position, I said, well, wh- well, what about you just try, just try me. I don't know much about your industry. You don't know much about me. What about a part-time role? So he says, oh, yeah, there's a, there's a contracting role coming up in the planning and analysis team. I'm like, perfect, thinking, what's planning and analysis? Anyway, it was in the finance team, so that was okay. So long story short, three-month contract, I ended up being the head of the business unit, GM of the business unit, involved in some M&A, lots of M&A that we didn't do. The business doubled, if not tripled, through that, through that period of time where Alinta was highly acquisitive and through the planning analysis and modelling division, you know, we're modelling and reviewing all of these and I became part of the core deal team along with a bunch of other highly successful businessmen in, in Perth. And I ended up being, so I started in 2004, three-month contract. By 2007, I was the acting CFO of Alinta in the management I saw you were, you were thrust into that role mm. in the middle of a management buyout. 
Yeah. Now, quite a significant point in time of that company to be placed acting CFO. How did you handle that? Because there would have been competing interests. Well, it was a difficult situation because you're working with a bunch of people who have decided to go and do a management buyout without telling you. And so it was very quite an emotional, hold on, I thought we were all part of a team, but you guys have gone down a different path. So you sort of get through that. And then part of the management team that sort of stepped in were really the folks that the board had known. I hadn't had probably no interaction with the board at that stage with the guy that they put in as the acting CEO at the time, I had spent a lot of time with. Right. So he knew me and I guess trusted me and they, they uh, saw something in me, quite frankly, that I didn't see myself. I never had aspirations of being the C- CFO at all. I don't think I'd attended one board meeting. And nonetheless, I was put into the role and, you know, a bit like going back out on the farm. There's nowhere to go, but suck it up and, and get on with it and do the, do the best you can. And that's what I did and learnt the, the lesson of, you know, as, as a part of the team, you look to the leader for guidance. Suddenly you're the leader. And I remember, you know, one morning looking in the mirror and going, you know, who's, who's going to help me out with this stuff? And, and I said to myself, well, you are. It's up to you. And uh, for me, that's quite empowering. Yes. And, and that's where, where I do my best work, to be quite frank. You know, you don't want to be there the whole time, but. You know, when there's a job to do, gets back to job to do part as the team. You know, and who's going to stand up? Who's who's going to stand up and and who's going to make it happen? And so I got a great opportunity. Hadn't been to a board meeting. I think we had fifty board meetings or something over that period of time. You know, all this M and A stuff in theory, it's actually in practice, and you're sitting there and through it. And I uh, I loved it, and it was terrifying all at the same time. Mate. Did you find it a steep learning curve? A massive. Massive yep. learning curve, and, and I learned a lot about how to represent yourself in a, in a really strong way. And I had a lot of interaction with John Akehurst, who, who was on the board and stepped into the chairman role of the board and other, other directors. And so I spent a lot of time watching, listening, and, and learning from, uh, from John Akehurst. So I got a, you know, a lesson in, you know, in terms of you know, John's highly successful business businessman yes. um, in all respects, not just in business, but in, in, in life and, and values and, and those sorts of things. And sitting and watching was a, a, an unbelievable privilege to be part of that. And I draw back on those, those skills and experience that I received then uh, to, to this day. It's interesting with that role and you're the ultimate purchaser of, of Alinta that was Babcock and Brown had a role to play in that. Yeah, so it was a, a joint bid between Babcock and Brown and Singapore Power. Singapore Power picked up all of the East Coast assets and Babcock and Brown kind of picked up all the energy generation, which was mostly in, in Western Australia. And so the Singapore Power was then where I went and joined what they rebadged as, as Gemina. And so that, right. that then led to the 2007 move to Melbourne. Back to Melbourne. Back to Melbourne. So Melbourne became an unbelievable experience for us because two things happened. We were in a position where financially we were fine. You know, that part that you take the pressure off, pressure valve came off and banners were in Melbourne. I mean, where else do you listen to, you know, perhaps not these days, but, you know, the footy's on digital radio. (laughs) Like how good Manny didn't like it so much, but, you know, just immersive every single, you know, you go through all this, you know, you talk about the four seasons, but in, in Melbourne it's the, 
it's the sport one thing after another and you know you're the the CFO of a you know, large organization yeah. you get to experience things that year we went to the uh, the grand final in the company's box on the train to the grand final you know, I'm sitting on the train manager's looking at me going you haven't I hadn't even got to the game yet and uh, the whole experience and getting, getting back to my youth again of watching the winners and all that sort of stuff on the tiny little black and white crappy TV <laughs> and, and I'm going to, to the, the AFL deal. grand final in a box as well you know it's it's just unbelievable you know, Christmas so life, life ex, you know life yeah. experience just unbelievable so there's many examples of that living living uh, you know I'd go into t- in, into town and walk in at work and have meetings and stuff and scratch myself and go this you know, imposter syndrome was massive because I'm like, <laughs> someone's going to find out and say, ah, surprise, Wellesley. Nah, this is not real champion. You know, uh, <laughs> but uh, so it was, you know, no, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was a wonderful time for us. Now, just coming back to what you learned out of that experience and when you look at their role with Alinta and with Jemina, it would have given you a unique insight into the Australian but also Asia-Pacific energy marketplace yep. and the requirements of that region. Is that right? You got a good feel for, for what the energy component of life here in the Asia Pacific was about. Yeah, so Ge- Gemina owned regulated and unregulated assets. And so the regulated assets, you know, important assets, it's all about maintenance programs and reducing risk. The unregulated assets are about developing markets and more of a risk taking. And that's where entrepreneurial sales and marketing and those sorts of things are important and, and the business struggles with that because no risk versus risk are quite different and when you want to grow your business and earn above regulated asset utility returns you've actually got to take risk but your whole business is built on mitigating and, and, not, and not taking risk and so the business is quite challenging so understanding that mm. is really important because if you take a regulated asset approach most of these companies are also or all of those regulated assets are investment grade so an investment grade approach into entrepreneurialism and risk taking, two things very rarely do they do they actually line up. So understanding the difference is really important. How you know, energy markets work, you know, all those things and all that all that exposure and balancing up safety as well. Obviously dealing with high voltage energy maintenance, you know, people up on wires and all those sorts of things. You know, so I've got a, a really good handle on that. And also a a love of that kind of stuff at Fortescue over the years we've had been involved in energy as it relates to an iron ore company and so you know those insights have been really helpful with respect to the power stations pipelines and you know even all the things that we're doing at the moment and we'll do in the future is that you know understanding how all that works and how you can then apply it in a in a business sense have been um, really valuable and so you have used i mean that does lend to the next question where you did leave alinta or jemina what it became to then go to Fortescue. But the, the learning that you came out of that experience has been very helpful in, in your sort of career journey through Fortescue? Yeah, well, I think at the end of the day, business is business. And mm. without getting hung up on, you know, takes, there's, there's different acronyms and nomenclature within businesses, but, but ultimately it boils down to the, the basics and all the, the basics are, are fundamentally the same. And we came back to Perth because... The Gemini business and what I wanted to do with my career were inconsistent. And so, you know, I'd really spent five years at, you know, the collective business and, and three of those years in Melbourne with, with Gemini. And, and Steve Pierce joined Fortescue sort of in the February 
called me in the April and said, hey, you know, I've joined this company. I'm putting a management team together. Got a whole bunch of stuff and it's a really exciting company. Would you consider joining? And that was at a point in time where we were thinking about maybe coming back to Perth and sort of what was my next role going to be. And so we really took a, a punt of sorts on, well, back in Perth, uh, good, pot, yep, mining company, good to get some mining experience and working with someone that I'd worked with before who I, I knew and trusted and, you know, looking at the business, it excited me, like the things that were being done, it was, it was quite interesting. So it was somewhat of a, of a risk, but it wasn't based on the fact that I could apply the energy infrastructure at Fortescue was more that I'd got I'd gotten skills and I took a punt on coming back to Fortescue and of course you know, history would say been a pretty good move and and I've been able to apply a lot of skills from the things that I've learned from all those different businesses as well as particularly you know, the the energy infrastructure in a smaller sense but also applying those the application of key performance indicators across the business. In, in the sense of a low margin business, which where iron ore, certainly in the last few years, has, has been anything but a low margin business, it's been a very high margin business. But importantly, sticking to the basics will set you up no matter what the cycle is, good, bad or indifferent, but sticking to the basics is, is always going to see you do well. Well, you'll move across to Fortescue, which at that point was the phenomenal third force in iron ore. And you started out as the group manager of funding, treasury and business planning. Mm. And uh, look, you're understated. So that was some 11 years ago. You moved into the role of company secretary in 2015, acting chief financial officer and company secretary in 2016. Then you're appointed to a newly established position of group manager, corporate finance and joint company secretary in 2017. And then in December 17, you're appointed chief financial officer of Fortescue Metals Group. That's quite a, a journey. And well, I want to come back to it, but as you've grown into this role, how have you drawn on your experiences? So you've grown up in a country town, you've moved to Melbourne, you've gone and worked for some significant organisations, but here you are with a founder that is very entrepreneurial, that is a driving force, not only of commerce, but of entrepreneurialism and, and what he's been able to achieve and here you are joining that, that massive movement. How did it feel and, and how did you stand up to the challenge and, and meet that task? Yeah, how, how did it feel? Exhilarating and terrifying all at the same time, almost on a, on, a, on a daily basis. The entrepreneurial part was what I was missing at Gemini. And, you know, Andrew's, Andrew's vision and ability to in, encourage and engage people to execute on a vision is, is phenomenal and, you know, that sort of speaks for itself. But just to put the my journey into perspective for the folks that are listening I joined because of the relationship that I had with Stephen Pierce and and I'd worked with him before so I knew that part would work and he completely empowering and we didn't really know what needed to be done first thing was to refinance some debt sorry the first thing I had to do was write my own job description you know so just to put that into perspective some debt needed to be refinanced so I'll have a crack at that hadn't done a lot of that at that point in time but have a go. So you can see the consistency back there. Yes. So we had a go. We did the first deal and myself and the team have, have raised and refinanced on in excess of 35 or something US billion dollars since. So part of it was to have a go and to back yourself to ask questions, find out what it's all about 
and just get in and do it. And so we went from relying pretty heavily on you know lawyers and investment bankers' support to building an internal capability that would be as good as you know, an investment banking group simply by doing it and getting on with it and not feeling the need to know all the answers, but importantly, to be able to ask the right questions, yes. find out what needs to get done and then, and then get it done. And when you're working in an organisation that wants to know, how can I help you? What do you need? And let's make it happen. You know, make it happen is a catch cry of, of Andrews is, you know, make it happen. And so what do we need to do to get it done? It was just incredible what was what was achieved you know and that this is the financing section which was an enabler for the expansion of the business and the whole organization was focused on every single person was working on something in relation to the expansion of the business so it's pretty pretty easy to make decisions when you go well okay what do i need to do today okay well i need to do x and y and z because that's that's where we're headed and you know, each step of Fortescue has been on the basis of the of the vision, and and the the current vision is clearly to move into an integrated metals and mining company and a green energy company. You know, that's the vision. It's a it's a very empowering position to be in, and and to make it happen. And as leaders, you're in, encouraged and empowered to explain what do we need to do and ask the right questions, be humble, share your vulnerabilities, all those things. And people get up and do it and achieve the impossible. And you know, there's a number of examples through the years. You just go. There sure is. And in the most part, folks said it's not. It can't be done. Just coming back a step though, Dr. Forrest founded the company in 2003. It's currently got a market capitalization of in excess of 60 billion dollars. You joined in 2010, and it's quite an integral part of the fu- the funding part that you talk about. I look at the deals. US $5 billion institutional term loan. You have received in these financing arrangements 2013 Deal of the Year for Asia Mining Congress, North America Leverage Loan of the Year. It's quite huge for someone and, and your team. Can you just talk us through those, that type period of time? And when you're raising this sort of money, what are the sort of conversations you're having for an emerging iron ore producer? It's, that's a big, uh, big question, Banners. I, I think first of all, I'd say I'm just part of the team. That you know, one person or even you know, you, you see the headlines that says you know, Andrew Forrest has raised 15 billion this week or whatever that, whatever the headline is. Clearly, he's, he's the leader and of the organisation, and and a whole heap of people are involved in this, and a whole group. Um, it's important. Part of it is, well, what do we need to do and support the business and the livelihoods of you know, back in those days, it was oh, probably five thousand people, and, and nowadays it's about ten or fifteen thousand people's livelihoods. As yes. what what do we need to do to achieve our objectives? And you know, on these deals, I don't think there was ever any thought about this is going to be the greatest deal ever, or the biggest deal that's ever been done, or it's never been done before. It was more about what was required, and how do we collectively bring our minds together and you know there's a there's a fair bit of strategy involved in all of this as well and you know it's the planning side of things which comes to the fore on the execution and then the conversations with various folks is always comes back to what's the right thing for the company and yep you've got advisors bankers lawyers accountants etc who are advisors but ultimately it's our responsibility to make the right decision for the company in the long term and, and when you take that approach, then irrespective of the outcome, you've done the right thing. Yes. And when you're empowered to do that, that's where when you get into 
for me, backing me into a corner, it'll take a fair bit, but that's when you'll get the best out of me. And what that's taught me over the years is that you don't need to get backed into a corner to get the best yeah, the the best out of you. So so these deals were uh, again terrifying and invigorating all at the same time. But ultimately, the measure of success wasn't the deal, but it was the consequential impact to the organisation, the company. You know, there was a number of deals that had their challenges, but it was never in any doubt because we knew that whatever was required, we were going to be able to do it because we were empowered to do it and, and that was that was what was what was needed and you know when you when your advisors understand that as well it's interesting how your advice starts to change yes starts to become long term you know we've we've had folks that have been advising us now for 12 or 13 years not because we don't have anyone else it's because that, that's who we choose to do and it's it's always a challenge to choose who's going to take us to the markets each and every time and but you know they keep keep delivering for us because it's uh, it's the right thing right thing for the company sort of a hard thing to get your head around that a simple country boy from Quirin can be involved in this and be in the middle of it and I guess it's only when you sort of reflect back because that, at the time you know when you're let's call it in the heat of battle you just get on with it and do it and you don't, yes. you don't you know the good the good thing about that you don't have too much time to think about it and you know a number of those transactions failure wasn't an option but it was never going to be a failure e- either way because we'll just figure it out on the way through and, and do the right thing. And sure enough, you get to the end and go, yeah, that was, that was, that was pretty cool. And but that team at the time that was doing was executing this were clearly close, clearly driven, and clearly were no wasn't an answer in the end. We had to get it done. Yep, yep, that's right. And, and there was a number of you know, different circumstances, a number of different work streams that were happening at the same time. You know, we'd, we had folks literally all over the world in different time zones and time frames and and literally every single person was asking the question what's my role what do i need to do what help do you need you know you you get on the phone and you know literally the whole the whole company's behind you and it all comes down to you know those sort of deal team situations where you bunker in and it's whatever's required and and when you know that even if you make a mistake you're going to be supported it means you very rarely make a mistake. Yes. So, you know, that goes to culture, goes to leadership, and leadership across the whole organisation is not just, you know, the, the, the folks involved. So, you know, that, the power of that, what I've learned out of that is, uh, you know, at Fortescue, I've learnt and we learn the art of the possible. And the, that, art, the art the, of the possible. The art of the possible. As in, rather than limiting your thinking to the past or the present, what's, what is the art of the possible? What would clean sheet of paper? Get a clean sheet of paper, what would you like to do? Because doing things differently is exactly what Fortescue has always done. And so therefore, when you think about it, I often explain our capital structure to our bankers. Our capital structure is quite different, but it has to be different because everything about Fortescue is different. From our expiration, from our development, our approach to energy infrastructure, mining, you know, it's, it's all different. And we've been successful because we've done things differently and people have gone, there's a better way to do that. And you go, well, why haven't you in- introduced it? You don't have to have that com- second conversation, why haven't you introduced it? If there's a better way of doing it, let's do it, do it. Has anyone else done it before? And if the answer is no, generally that's the thing that we'll do, <laughs> for, for, you know, for obvious reasons. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, you, and, and that's where that, that sort of risk management that I spoke about earlier Taking risk as a mining company, you, you 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 have to get 
to be successful, you've got to be able to manage, uh, identify and manage risk, and, and, and Fortescue does that very well. So through this process, over the, the cumulative years prior to be, you being opened up for the possibility of being this Chief Financial Officer of Fortescue, can you talk about the process of you being appointed? It's yeah. quite a, it's quite a, um, an honour, firstly, to be appointed such a senior role within the organisation. And, you know, you had started in 2010. Here we are seven years later and you've been appointed that role. Mm. Talk to us a little bit about that. And, and was it, well, clearly you've earned the right, but just a little bit of background and how, and how that unfolded. So in, entitlement is, is something that I, I never understood, still don't understand. So, so therefore, as you say, the honour is right. You sort of rattle through a few of my different roles and so I'd sort of been in the funding corporate finance for a while and we had a restructure of the, the finance team and I got offered a couple of roles uh, and and which I didn't really like and the company secretary role was up and as you said, I've, I was the company secretary for a couple of years and the reason why I took that role was because it was a progression to CFO. And so I'd seen what being CFO was like at uh, at Gemini. I, I joined Fortescue to, to help out and do whatever was required. And so, so I'd done that and, you know, I was still wanting to, you know, the, what, what's the next step? Quite clearly, CFO is the next step. So I'd, I'd made that decision in, in my mind and, and what company secretary did for me was a progression because I'd, I'd never really been involved in that in detail and I thought that's going to give me exposure to the board as well, which which obviously the, the further up the, the chain you go, that's an important thing to consider. And so I did that role for a couple of years. As a commerce guy, I think I balanced up and, and helped with some systems and processes and procedures and more, more recently, or, or a few years ago, we, we've... We, got a new company secretary who, who is an expert and I kind of think back and go, holy cow, you know, how did I survive in that because I'm so not as good as what he does, you know, technically. But nonetheless, what that did was that I spent a lot of time with the board, in the board and, and with, with the board more broadly. And so when Stephen Pearce left and the CFO role came up, I went for the role, myself and a couple of others internally, Ended up missing out on that, but twelve months later, I'm then appointed to CFO because post that point, Ned Power resigned. Elizabeth was appointed to CEO. She was then CFO at the time, and I was appointed to CFO. And how that process rolled out was there was clearly things going on in in the background, and the the resolution hadn't hadn't happened yet. And I'm I'm mowing <laughs> mowing the lawn on a Saturday. Uh, Saturday morning, the country boy, you know, I love, love mowing the lawn, enjoy, <laughs> enjoy doing manual, manual labour. And yeah, I get a call on the phone and it's, it's, it's Andrew, Andrew Forrest. Uh, oh, well, see, are you home? I'm, yep, I'm home. He said, oh, I want to come and, can I come and see And I said, yeah, of course, I'm kind of looking at myself with my, you know, mowing apparel on. This is probably not appropriate for the chairman to pop over. Uh, you know, put the phone down and Mandy looked at me and she said, oh, what's wrong? So obviously the blood had drawn from my face. <laughs> and I said, oh, Andrew, Andrew wants to come over and talk to me. She said, oh, what about? And I said, oh, 
I don't know. He didn't say. So I guess it's a, a reflection of Andrew's personable nature. He comes over for, for a cup of tea, literally. So have a cup of tea, you know, like the you know the kitchen table cup of tea kind of thing you'd, you'd have at the Banfield homestead. Except it's Andrew Forrest, you know, the chairman. So he comes in with a bit of preamble and a bit of a chat and he said, Rosie, I, I want you to be the, the CFR Fortescue. And it was pretty pretty amazing oh, yes. to sort of get there because the journey was not without, you know, there's, there's plenty of times where that wasn't even, you know, a, a possibility and, you know, an amazing journey. But to be able to share that with Mandy as well was was pretty special in my usual you know wittiness i sort of said to him oh, can you leave it with me i'll get back to you and just you know laughed it off and gave him a cuddle and said of course and whatever you need i'm there and so it was a, a really special special time nathaniel at the time was still in perth he was at work came home and andrew's car's parked in the driveway and you know Nathaniel storms in just about to say, you know, <laughs> I can't park my car. And he's, you know, his, his jaws dropped and he goes, oh, g'day, g'day champ, I'm Andrew Forrest. And Nathaniel and he said, oh, I'm just over asking your dad to be the CFO of Fortescue. And Nathaniel said, well, what did he say? <laughs> <laughs> so a bit of family, family humour. So, so, yeah, so that was, yeah, back in, I guess, 2017 and, and being the, doing the role doing the role since and, and really enjoying the role. Oh, thanks for sharing that. That is a, a really, really good insight. So with with the CFO role and Elizabeth as CEO, the, the company's gone from strength to strength. Have you drawn – one thing I've noticed when, when I look through the things that Fortescue stand for, those the values, I really do come through so strongly. Those values, I would say, would resonate really well with your upbringing. Family, exactly. enthusiasm, integrity, yeah. to name a few. Yeah. And I know they're really critical to the cultural result that Fortescue has and, and the way that the business and the operations and the company itself overall really conducts itself. Just having the opportunity to listen to the way Fortescue executives present, you can't help but be drawn into that. It's a really important thing. Have you just sort of embraced it's almost like it's a perfect fit for you in terms of where you've come from. It is, Tim, and one of the things from my career and personal development, being the leader and being part of the leadership group is really empowering to hold people. What comes naturally and is really easy is to hold people accountable to the values which I hold dear to myself, which, as, as you say, you know that, that's really empowering that, that you can say, with confidence, this is what we're going to do. And this is this is what I'm going to show in actions, not just in words. Yes. This is what I'm going to do and this is how we're going to do it. And and as a you know, I really focused on the finance team to start off with and using the finance team as a this is how we're doing going to do things and doing what you say you're going to do, having the privilege of speaking to folks and, and upholding the values in words and actions was really empowering for me. And what I realised is once I became and was appointed the CFO of Fortescue, for a lot of my mentors and people who know me well go, well, that's a natural progression. But it wasn't a natural progression for me personally. 
for me personally was okay now now that i've i've made it because i have have a title i finally allowed myself to be myself yes and and i share that story because we spend so much time and energy trying to be what we think others want us to be it is a waste of time i am in the position where i can't believe it took me 50 years to work that out and so suddenly suddenly you're just being yourself and it's you know you have your trials and your tribulations you don't always don't always get it right but coming back to those values and being true to yourself and true to your purpose true to your values family integrity trust all those things is the way to go and that's where you get the best out of yourself and as a consequence from others it's a huge privilege to be able to do that but it's also a responsibility as well yes yes and that responsibility goes across all areas in your role and i look at the key points of we talked about culture but safety inclusiveness that's across gender but also a huge role within Fortescue is the inclusiveness within the Indigenous culture and also the respect of that culture. I know you've got a real affiliation with that as well. Just give us a little bit of an insight into that and the way you, you, you're being able to sort of, I suppose, your upbringing, having gone to school in a very diversified school, being querying primary through to querying senior school and then Mazenoid. How has it sort of all come together and helped you? Yeah, I think the stereotype of, I don't know, executive, firstly, CFO, secondly, the stereotypes associated with that is that I'm reasonably rebellious naturally, so I like to surprise people. And so, you know, going up on site, whether it's the general manager, role is irrelevant, race is irrelevant, upbringing is irrelevant, they're people. And these people... You know, I love and adore all of them, speak to them all the same. When I do presentations or explaining something in my teacher role, folks really resonate with it because I'm teaching it to them in their language, not mine. Yes. Why? Because I respect them. And what I'm trying to do is communicate to people in, in words and phrases and explanations that make sense sense to them and that's a really important part of communication is to think about your audience and so I engage with people because I truly care about them and when they talk to me and when we interact it's not because I tell them that I care about them they can tell by the by virtue of the the conversation and so being yourself is a pretty powerful thing because people go yeah okay cool all right what's this guy what what do you want us to do man okay yep and so again that privilege to be in that position but also, interestingly, the psychology of having the title to then go, okay, now I'm allowed to do this. You know, so some of the sort of respectful upbringing of, you know, get your superiors or your uh, parents' approval to do stuff is that at some point in your life you've got to realise that now it's up to you. You're the parent, which is quite frightening. In itself, <laughs> but, uh, so perhaps another, another story. You know, Mandy often gives me get interesting this more senior you get in an organisation we talk about the loneliness of leadership. Rally talked about that in his, his podcast, which I really liked that as well. The loneliness of leadership. And you get feedback, mostly the kind of feedback to, let's call it improved performance. Particularly Australian culture, feedback on the other is sucking up to the boss or that, that type of stuff, you know. So the important feedback loop 
just in life, it's really clearly identified as a senior leader, is that if you're relying on the external feedback loop, you're going to be sadly, sadly in trouble. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's really, okay, so what are my KPIs? How am I going to live my life? And, you know, I've, I've worked that out through attrition that the things that are matter to me matter to me and the other stuff that goes on, that helps with the distraction factor of, you know, this person doesn't like me or you get some feedback of, you know, that didn't go well or you should do this or do that. And the point is the stuff that's going to help you develop and be a better person, better leader, better family member, that's the stuff you take on. And by because it's important to you on the inside, so it's more of an inside feedback loop rather than the, the outside, I guess, is, uh, is, is a really important part of... And you, if you get into it, successful leaders have been able to, to manage that sustainably yes. because they're on the internal feedback loop, as in, you know, we've got a long-term strategy, that's where we're going. Cool, all the other stuff's just a distraction because that's, that's where we're going. That's the end goal. That's what, what we can do. These are our values. Another big thing for me is focusing on the things you can control. In a work sense, you know, we'll articulate that in relation to production or whatever it might be. But getting distracted on things that you can't control is, is again, another energy sapper. It's been a phenomenal year for Fortescue in terms of the, the results. The net profit after tax, $10.3 billion. Annual shipment of in excess of 180 tonnes. C1 cost of $14 a tonne. Phenomenal metrics. Mm. How does the company continue to adjust for the fluctuation in iron ore price given it's been quite strong for a period of time? But clearly, like any other commodity, we have our ups and downs. The company's built for the long term. Yeah, it gets back to a few things that I said earlier is that getting the fundamentals right irrespective of the market cycle. You know, whether it's the, the wheat farm or, you know, commodity cycles will find you out quickly, particularly in a down cycle if you haven't got the fundamentals right. And you can't always, you know, if you can't survive through that, you won't get to the other side. So, you know, our, our results last year were phenomenal, somewhat to do with the iron ore price, but mostly to do with because we've got the fundamentals right and we're executing on our strategy. We've been progressively improving our product mix. We're focused on cost control, irrespective of the market cycle. And first and foremost, we're focused on, on safety. And so we've got a clear strategy on maximising the return on, on our assets. We said that we would return capital to shareholders. And we said we'd repay debt. You know, we talk about the debt story. We, we repaid the first bucks that went, you know, when we got into free cash flow after the expansion of Solomon and Christmas Creek, we repaid $9 billion worth of debt. And we're now to the point where our shareholder returns is almost double that number. And you've got to go back to 2019, which is where we paid our first material dividend. 2019. It's not, not actually that long ago. No. So what is important to us is delivering on doing what we say we're going to do, which, of course, is, is the value of integrity, doing what you say you're going to do. And you know, you've seen the benefits of that. And the pleasing part about, I guess, the last four years and being part of the senior executive team is that we haven't really done anything differently other than doing what we say we're going to do, you know, executing on our strategy and being true to our values. But in saying being true to your values, that doesn't mean you don't have hiccups. From time to time, you learn from, from things that haven't perhaps gone 
the the way you'd like to, but always comes back to the same thing, just getting the, the fundamentals right. And I, I used to say through my career, you're talking to a consultant or somebody or maybe maybe folks in the business, you, know, you, got, you need to dumb it down for me because I'm a simple country boy. Can't quite get away with that one anymore, <laughs> banners. But but nonetheless, it's you know that's that's humility yeah. and vulnerability, and it's kind of like, well, what are the fundamentals that we need to get right? Because sometimes you overcomplicate it. Yep. And one of the great sayings that Andrew has, which I I, I, I quite like, is anyone can make it complicated, but it takes a genius to make it look simple. Nice one, and very very relevant. Complexity can often take over. Mm. So. In terms of keeping things simple, you often hear the word pioneering come out through the Fortescue message. I think with regards to looking at the recent history of Fortescue, the use of autonomous trucks, the way that you've got the world's fastest heavy haul rail, these sorts of things, it just throws progression on every level. Let's go to the other side, which is recently coming through, which is the Fortescue Green Ambitions. Do you want to just give us a bit of an insight into into that and how you see things with your experience and where that ultimately will end up? Well, the track record of Fortescue on doing what we say we're going to do, I think I'd I'd start there. Andrew's Andrew's vision and the company, the board's vision on where things are headed. Economics aside, decarbonising uh, or, or industry or the world is is critical to our the sustainability as a, as a, as a human race. So yes. you sort of start there and go, well, we, we need to do it. And then the how is the application of, in the most part, technologies that are known, they just haven't been presented, prepared, produced at scale. So rather than focusing on the specifics on how it's going to be done, it, it, has, to, it has to be done. So you go, well, okay, we've got no choice, so, so let's, let's get into it and, and do it. Joining Fortescue in 2010, there was a, a vision to expand the company to you know, phenomenal numbers that, in the most part, folks went, well, this has never been done before, so how are you going to do it? And the organisation got in and, and made it happen, and you know, those examples of autonomy or the trucks, and there's, there's thousands of examples of, of, of doing things differently because, because you have to. And so I'd say that the green energy business is going to be along those lines where Fortescue's got a target to decarbonise our iron ore operations by 2030. Are we going to do that? Yeah, I think we are. Yes. Uh, why? Because whatever needs to be done, we'll, we'll get it done. Again, getting back to it's my, almost my like previous... history repeating itself. It's, yeah. it's empower the right people. We've clearly got a strategy of how to do it. That The how to do is down to the folks who know the answers. Yeah. Well, it's not me. I can help articulate the vision, but ultimately it's down to the, the technical folks who know how these, these types of things get done and empowering them to challenge their thinking and saying, well, we can't do it at the same cost that it currently is now. It needs to be cheaper, so what do we need to do? And you know, that's pretty much what the whole team at FFI are running around the world doing, finding assets that can produce hydrogen using green energy, whether that be wind or solar, we're doing that in Australia to decarbonise our existing business. So it makes a whole heap of sense to then leverage off that capability and, and testing pot when you think about someone developing a new battery electric haul truck. So that's being done in our operation, within our operations. Can you imagine a heavy mining equipment, uh, you know, a, a, an OEM uh, original uh, manufacturer yeah. negotiating with a major 
to potentially interrupt production to go test their equipment. You know, that's just one simple example. So that's happening now. Those things are happening. So, you know, the specifics, I think, are less important in this. It's the big picture. Yes. It's the, that's the strategy. Now we're working through the tactics on how that's getting done and we're getting experts and folks who know how to do this and also probably folks who don't yet know how to do it because they're going to work it out. So, you know, it's a pretty, pretty exciting, exciting place. Hugely exciting. Organisationally, decarbonised by 2030 means that Fortescue would be producing iron ore that was zero carbon. 2030. So the next closest targets for others are maybe 2040 or 2050. Yes. So therefore, to put that into perspective, Fortescue is producing 200 million tonnes of iron ore, hematite, magnetite, 200 plus, for 10 years before the next competitor, 10 or 20 years even perhaps. So you can see the size of the prize and, and how suddenly the economics start to work. Appreciate that it's pretty hard to model that. It's very hard for people to put that into their you know, MPV Excel spreadsheet. But we're kind of not at the MPV Excel spreadsheet level where we've got to do this, we've yeah. got to do it fast and we've got to do it now. And this is really what you're calling these stretch targets. Yeah, well, the, the stretch targets are, are uh, really about what is it that you want to achieve and the stretch target is just simply saying you could take a Gemini style or a regulated asset budget that gets presented to the board which says we can do 100, we'll put the budget in at 80. So we can under-promise and over-deliver. Yes. At Fortescue we go, well, we think we can do 100 and we'll stretch ourselves to 120. Why? Well, because 100 is par. We need to do things differently. We actually don't know specifically how we're going to get to 120, but that's what we're going to do. And pretty much nine times out of ten, sure enough, you find a way. Think about a sporting sense, you know, you're uh, a high performer yourself. You know, you go, well, I got 25 touches last week. I'm going to go out there and get, what, what are you going to get, 25 or 20? No, no, I want to get more than what I did last yeah, last week. Yeah, yeah, That's just an example of a stretch target. Because if you don't, if you don't go for the 25 or 30 or you know, 10% extra, what happens if you're a little bit off the mark or you've actually left some something on the table, you know, the elite sport is about leaving nothing off the table at the end, leaving nothing. Old mate Rafa didn't leave too much on the court, did he? No, he sure didn't. Yeah. And and, it, and it's a really great analogy of way or way of comparing how Fortescue approaches its business. Mm. It doesn't seek me- mediocrity. It is looking to challenge the bo- the boundaries or the realms of what can be achieved. Yeah, and so so then consequently you look at the types of folks who work at a company like Fortescue, they're, I guess elite level is not the right word to use, but they're, they're, they're high performers because they, they want to achieve. They want to achieve, but also it's the, the, it's the matrix of performance and values. So where we all want to be is high performance, high values. Sometimes we've mistaken that with high performance and low values. You know, the Australian cricket team had their challenges a few years back and I remember thinking at that point in time, and what the Australian cricket team said, unacceptable. So where do you reckon JL is on his matrix of high performance and high values? He's top right quartile, high performance with high values. Yes. Harder, way harder, much harder. Yeah. Sustainability factor, huge. Can you keep doing it over and over and over again? Of course you can. Just fascinating. Could talk about this for a long time because it's, I mean, not only is it exciting from a business learning perspective, but just watching 
this company unfold and how it continues to progress and as I said earlier challenge the boundaries is just super super impressive and from that perspective you know you've got an amazing example in Andrew Forrest who seems from the outside to as chairman be working 24-7 to achieve goals that he's very very passionate and feel strongly about you can see it in the way he presents and the way he carries himself around this particular issue at the moment Fortescue Future Industries but iron ore before that and how proud he is about Fortescue as a business and the people within it it must be a really for the people who work with him such a such an amazing example and role model yeah that's right and living by values is important to Andrew in the high performance, high values, when you get an organisation, talk about culture, culture starts at the top. And it, as you just articulated with respect to Andrew's public persona, but, but what he's doing is that that culture starts at the top and works its way down. It's the same as organisations where the board and management are aligned on the strategy. You know, sometimes companies have some challenges when either the board are driving it and management don't agree or management are driving it and the board don't agree. So... You know, that alignment is important. But again, I'd, I'd get back to everyone's got a role to play in it. It's not just about one person or the leadership team. Is that, And there's a difference between vision and strategy and tactics. And for us, it's getting that balance right. The board's job is to set the vision and set the strategy and then it's up to management to then execute. And that's that gets down into the into the tactics and it's important to know where you're going to be able to make the right decisions to ultimately get to the end game. And we like to like to think about the end as we're starting and in the planning. So where are we headed? What's the end game look like? We might not know the specifics of every single component part all the way through, but ultimately start where you want to finish is a really powerful way of going through and also coming back and holding yourself accountable to, no, no, remember we agreed this is where we're headed. Yeah. Let's, let's, not, let's not get distracted and sort of comes back to the controlling the things that 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 you can control and i'd make the other point on you know fortescue as a company is now the group it's not iron ore and and it's not ffi but it's a you know it's a a green energy and metals company and it's a group we've you know we're now uh international we've got we've had a number of international companies and and operations in, in the past mostly related to iron ore obviously exploration but, you know, it's the Fortescue Group and, as you say, you, you mentioned sort of that at the beginning and, and for Elizabeth and myself being the group, you know, we've got folks that work in iron ore and folks that, that work in, in FFI. It's, a, it's a quite a different change in mindset and so the future senior leadership roles in, in Fortescue from a group perspective is, a, is that that's changing quite quickly. Yes, yes. Just moving a little bit, because I'm conscious of your time, I just did want to, you've been really quite heavily involved throughout your life in causes that you're passionate about. I know you've been involved with the Salvation Army for a long time and also had a, quite a bit to do with the Alzheimer's Institute of WA. You've always felt it important to be able to give back. I use that term give back, but contribute to these causes. Just give us a bit of an insight into that. I know Alzheimer's is particularly close to both yourself and myself, mm. but just your role in terms of what you've been able to give to the not-for-profit and, and that, that sector. 
Yeah, I think it gets back to your core values of helping others, irrespective of their station in life and being privileged in terms of having a good job and living a privileged life is something to be that I'm acutely aware of because I didn't realise how humble my beginning was because it was cool, it was great. I had everything I ever needed and didn't even realise there was other stuff that you could even aspire to. So taking that kind of approach, the community approach, on a Saturday morning, Dad would be up and off and out in the van to someone's farm because the roof had blown off. Saturday generally wasn't a work day, but he did it because that was what was required. The fair on the whatever day that was fundraising because Mrs Coakley's house burnt down and we're raising money because her house burnt down. Like, that's just second nature. And the, the question of what do you need, what do you want? I got asked the question when I became CFO. And you've got uh, 10 bucks left, what do you do with it? And I answered, I give it to someone who needs it more than me. So I guess that's the kind of person I am. Having the opportunity to do that, again, is a privilege. So at Alzheimer's, I did that for a period of time when I wasn't the CFO, and unfortunately I just couldn't, couldn't fit it in. But what we did over that period was sort out their financials. It's not for profit, and what we used to talk about at the audit committee and board is that yeah, it's not for profit, but it's also not for loss. Hardest businesses you can run because the margin for error is pretty small. Yes. Of course, you have to make a modest return because you want to reinvest. So that was very good for my soul. I'd shock, we'd go into an audit committee and I'd talk about a hundred and I'd say million accidentally because I'm just come from Fortescue and it was a hundred thousand. So they'd be freaking out for the, for, for the number. So we had some, <laughs> some fun some fun times, but you know, I saw that as a, as a great privilege. And the, and the Salvation Army runs back. People perhaps perhaps don't realise it runs back a lot deeper in terms of my father. So my paternal grandparents, Fred and Dorothy Wells, Salvation Armyists. Okay. Uh, and they were both, I think, um, captains in the Salvation Army. And my my cousin is married to Warren Palmer, who's very senior in the Salvation Army. And and as things happen in life that the the role that I play at the Salvation Army Business Advisory Committee came via another from a I was replacing someone else that we were working with onto the committee. Warren's there, we put two and two together and I've been on the committee for maybe ten years and I'm the I'm privileged to be the chairman of the committee and part of the committee's role is to put business together with the Salvation Army to develop long term relationships. So that the Salvation Army can then use those funds. We're really after perpetuity funds because, as you know, like with any business making long-term decisions, you need long-term sustainable cash flows. Yes. Relying on government is helpful, but of course things change, you know, budgets and so forth. And so putting the Salvation Army together is, is something that we work on a lot and part of the committee's role is to put businesses together. So hopefully folks are listening listening to the podcast and think well and, you know we'd like to get involved in the Salvation Army we can help you do that as well. When I, um, I, I look at your role there you can see there's a lot of passion involved with that and you, it comes through very loud and clear. You're clearly a passionate guy you've thrown everything at sporting career for that small period of time you managed to get there you've gone on and pursued your career with intensity You've got a wonderful wife and family. Have you found it difficult to balance life 
in terms of work and home? I'm sure it's been difficult in patches. Have you got that strike, that balance yet? It's, it's always a balance, I think, uh, probably later in, later in life and perhaps that point I made earlier of allowing myself to be myself and sort of not being so connected with a phone and working 24-7. The roles do require a level of selfishness to get it right and so you kind of look back and go, how did I do that? That was what was required, but I, I get back to the partnership where we made the choice early in life and we were privileged to be able to make the choice that Mandy stayed home and looked after the kids. And that's paid dividends in terms of their upbringings, their lives. And, you know, I'm sure you'll agree you get feedback from others outside of your family on how great your kids are. They're quite slight, a little bit different at home around mum and dad, but nonetheless, you know, you get you see those values come through and you have a lot of pride a pride in that but uh Mandy comes along to to work events and so forth and she used to ask you know people ask me what do I do and I said well you're pretty simple Dale you just tell them that you're the executive chairman of the family business because without her doing what she does I there's no way I could have done any of the stuff that I've done and 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 so you know it's a it's a real partnership yes and and there's sacrifice involved on, you know, on, on both sides, but you do that for the greater good, you know, like the strategy for business, I suppose, of what do you want to achieve in life? And when you get to the point where your kids are independent, both got jobs, got great futures, you kind of go, that was what I was really looking for. It's great that they're there, but how come they don't need me anymore? <laughs> <laughs> so it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's the next, it's the next stage that, that we're at, which is, which again is a, is a huge privilege and, it's, it's the overnight success that took 50-odd uh, years to achieve, Benis. Wellsy, it's been a good chat. I must say, when we have an opportunity like this to talk through what has been clearly a, a fantastic career, and, and it's not over yet. Clearly, there's a lot going on at Fortescue in terms of their growth plans and, and where they're looking to direct the business. But what you've been able to articulate in a very forthright but understated in a humble way is shows us being myself and the listeners a lot about you as a person and how you've been able to navigate your life keeping true to yourself and and I think that says a lot for you really want to wish you all the best going forward it's going to be challenging but equally I can tell with every ounce of listening to what you've had to say today that it is going to be one hell of a ride and really exciting so all the best with it from everyone yeah, thanks, Tim. Thanks, uh, thanks again for having having us and listening to the story. Yeah, I think it's really important to to me to to make a contribution, but to be true to yourself and getting the opportunity of sharing my story with others is important to me. And so, getting the opportunity, as I say, is a, is a real privilege. So, thank you. Thanks for sharing, and good to see you. Yeah, cheers. See you, Wellsy. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding the Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian wealth management and diversified financial services company, Euros Hartleys. If you like what you heard, please don't hesitate to tell your friends and subscribe to the podcast through your podcast host of choice. If you have any questions or would like to contact us, please email our fabulous producer, Bridget, on communications at euroshartleys.com or visit our website at www.euroshartleys.com. 
This podcast has been general information only. Your Oz Hartley's holds Australian Financial Services Licence 230052.